Good morning and a very warm welcome to the final hour of Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's audio bouquet Channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa Tabisolu Hoko. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, the economic freedom fighters has threatened to disrupt any event attended by Zimbabwean officials if its embassy in the country is not shut down. And a call made for more hands on deck in the fight for gender equality. In economics news, Morocco plans to reform, merge or dissolve some state entities to reduce their dependency on a state budget hit by the coronavirus pandemic. But first up, the news with Anne Moussa. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Good morning, I'm Anne Moussa. South Africa's opposition EFF party has reiterated the call by its leader Julius Malema for Zimbabwe's embassy in South Africa to be closed. This follows a public spat between Malema and Zimbabwe's ambassador to South Africa over the decision to compensate white farmers who were targeted during the land invasions under Robert Mugabe. Zimbabwe has been the scene of chaos in recent days, with citizens taking to the streets over the ailing economy and allegations of corruption. A number of demonstrators, including a prominent journalist who had helped lift the lid on corruption, related to COVID-19 personal protective equipment have been detained. EFF spokesperson Delisi Luenguenya urged the AU and SEDEC region to intervene. These interventions must be tangible and we therefore call for the removal of the Zimbabwean embassy in South Africa until human rights are restored in the country and the lives of people are not taken by a repressive government. Failure to do this will result in direct action by the EFF to prevent any official of the Zimbabwean government from participating in meetings in South Africa while they wage war on ordinary people in Zimbabwe. South Africa has recorded 345 new COVID-19-related deaths in the last 24-hour cycle, bringing the national death toll to 8,884. Meanwhile, the health department says the cumulative number of infections has risen to 521,318 after 4,456 new infections were recorded since the last report. The recovery rate now stands at 69.8%. Zoleka Kodashe reports. She is now just 116 new fatalities shy of breaching the 9,000 deaths mark. The Western Cape still has the highest number of fatalities at 3,245, followed by Gauteng with 2,268, and the Eastern Cape with 1,832, while KwaZulu-Natal nears the 1,000 mark with a total of 976 fatalities. But it's not all bleak. The number of recoveries now stands at over 363,000, translating to 69.8%. Secondary schools in Nigeria have reopened for classes almost four months after they closed to halt the spread of coronavirus. Final year students now have just two weeks to prepare for the exams. The Education Ministry says face masks, social distancing and hand-washing facilities are mandatory within all schools.
The World Health Organization has urged Russia to follow the established guidelines for producing safe and effective vaccines. This after Moscow announced plans to start mass vaccination against the coronavirus. The BBC's Emergent Folks reports. Developing and testing a vaccine typically takes years. Russia's announcement that it was ready to begin mass producing a vaccine next month has caused surprise. And today the World Health Organization said safety should not be compromised. Among over a hundred vaccines currently in development, just a handful have reached the final stages of testing. The Russian vaccine is apparently not among them. And scientists suggest... Even the potential vaccines which are most advanced are unlikely to be widely available before spring or summer of next year at the earliest. Lebanon is in mourning after a huge explosion in the capital. Beirut killed at least 78 people and injured more than 4,000 others. The whole city was shaken by the blast which began with a fire at the port which exploded into a mushroom cloud. The president said 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate had been stored unsafely. In a warehouse for six years, he scheduled an urgent cabinet meeting for Wednesday and said a two-week state of emergency should be declared. The country will observe an official period of mourning for three days from Wednesday. And in sports news, Springboks events coach Neil Powell believes his squad his squad's return to training will not only boost the Blitzbocker players on a physical level, but will also give the players a mental boost as they prepare for their return to the Stellenbosch Academy of Sport based next week. The players will undergo COVID-19 testing on Thursday as part of the return to play protocols and will report for duty next Tuesday. For Powell, this comes at a good time for his squad who last saw action in early March. Blitzbox coach Neil Powell and his management had a productive meeting on Monday to prepare for the return of the players. Powell admits that it's not going to be easy to adjust to the new COVID-19 regulations in sport. Yeah, I think it's great for for the seven system to start um, eventually. I think it's it's been a, a long four months, um, and we as a management um, started this week or today, um, planning on on the next few weeks and, and months ahead, and and for the next season. Um, obviously, challenging as well with all the regulations and protocols that we need to have in place. And that's the news headlines at seven thirty Central African time. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. There's been a slight change to our programming. Your favorite program may not be broadcast at the usual time, and you might just hear a program that you have missed. We, however, continue to keep you informed and entertained. Channel Africa. Bring you programming from an African perspective. It's 7.08 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The Economic Freedom Fighters has threatened to disrupt any event attended by Zimbabwean officials if its embassy in the country is not shut down. This follows a public spat between Malema and Zimbabwe's ambassador to South Africa, David Hamaziripi. 
over the decision to compensate white farmers who were targeted during the land invasions under the late Robert Mugabe. The country has been a scene of chaos in recent days, with citizens taking to the streets over the ailing economy and allegations of corruption. A number of demonstrators, including a prominent journalist who had exposed corruption related to COVID-19 personal protective equipment, have been detained. Nomalizo Mandela reports. Zimbabwe's decision to compensate farmers who were dispossessed of land during a controversial land reform process seems to be what sparked the ire of EFF leader Julius Malema. Last week, the Zimbabwean government announced that 4,000 white commercial farmers whose farms were confiscated would now be getting a 3.5 billion US dollars compensation for improvements they had made on the land. Taking to his Twitter account, Malema called the decision a treasonous act and that President Emerson Mnangagwa was either ignorant or had bowed to pressure from what he called the white supremacist world. Malema was supported by his party. Its head of international relations, Godrich Gadi, explains. It is a known convention that uh, diplomats do not have to descend to the political arena in, a, in the country of their host. It was undiplomatic for a high commissioner to engage in a tussle with an opposition party of a domestic country that is hosting him. And uh, as such, we will be calling on the Department of International Relations and uh, Cooperation and the President to revoke his credentials, failure which, save for COVID-19, we will have organized a 50,000-person march to that uh, embassy to close it ourselves if his government does not recall him. In a strongly worded statement, Ambassador David Hamadzirebi said that he cannot remain silent in the face of what he called the EFF's pretentiousness to know more about the history and politics of Zimbabwe than the Zimbabweans themselves. He added that he expected the EFF and others who may wish to comment on the land issues in Zimbabwe to do so from an informed, objective and constructive standpoint and contribute to the unity and progress of Zimbabwe. Another attack on Malema came from Zimbabwe's permanent secretary in the information ministry, Nick Mangwa. He said they would not be lectured by Malema, accusing the EFF leader of fronting for the ruling ZANU-PF's G40 faction. Responding to these attacks, EFF spokesperson Delisi Lenguenya urged the AU and SADC region to intervene. The ZANU-PF government, and particularly the Zimbabwean embassy in South Africa, must focus on putting an end to the violence in Zimbabwe instead of frivolous paranoia around G40 factions and the EFF. We call on the African Union and all governments in the SADC region to make an intervention in the crimes against humanity being committed by the Mnangangwa regime against the people of Zimbabwe. Nguenya said they are not phased by the criticism from the embassy and Zimbabwean government officials. She said failure to close the Zimbabwean embassy would lead to disruptions by the party. Failure to do this will result in direct action by the EFF to prevent any official of the Zimbabwean government from participating in meetings in South Africa while they wage war on ordinary people in Zimbabwe. 
Malema has always been a staunch supporter of ZANU-PF and its late former leader and president of Zimbabwe, Robert Mugabe. During his visit to Zimbabwe in 2010, Malema criticized the late former opposition MDC leader, Morgan Tangerai, describing him as an ally of imperialists. During the same visit, Malema called for Mugabe-style seizure of mines and farms in South Africa. However, Malema seems to have now changed his tune. Early last year, during a press conference, Malema distanced himself from the governing ZANU-PF. Some nonsense wrote me an email and said, yeah, uh, we, we, ZANU-PF, we support you. You don't understand what's happening here. And now you are saying these things you are saying about the soldiers. Were, I said, I don't care whether ZANU-PF support me or not. I don't care about ZANU-PF. What is ZANU-PF? ZANU-PF is ANC Muslim. Same thing, I don't care about ZANU-PF. I'm not married to ZANU-PF. I have no relationship with ZANU-PF, none whatsoever. I care about the people of Zimbabwe. Anyone who unleashes soldiers on innocent and armed people, you have declared those people the enemy of the state. You are a fool. You don't deserve my respect. That report by Nomalizo Mandela. There should be no bystanders in the fight to achieve gender equality. This is something everyone should be involved in. That's the message to emerge from an intergenerational conversation by two prominent South African women as we move towards Women's Day this Sunday, August the 9th. Moderated by the SABC show and Bryce Peace, the executive director of UN Women and the reigning Miss Universe shared their views on this year's theme, General Equality, Realizing Women's Rights for an Equal Future. It's a national holiday that commemorates the 1956 march of around 20,000 women to the union buildings against the country's past laws. 64 years later, the struggle for women's emancipation is more complex, particularly in light of the coronavirus pandemic. Listen to UN Women's Executive Director Dr. Pumzilem Labunguka. The deadline is uh, looming. And the situation is much more complicated than it was a few months ago even. Um, the, the theme is picking up on the fact that we have had 25 years of implementing what was agreed in uh, Beijing. There are many unfulfilled promises uh, from this 25-year journey. And we are saying between 2020 and 2030, but I'm, I'm focusing on 2025 because if we stretch it too long, we may, may walk slow. We need to see significant change by this generation, which we are dubbing Generation Equality. Miss Universal Zabini Tunzi, born less than two years before the first Women's Day was commemorated in South Africa in 1995, explains the day's personal significance to her. For my generation, it's just us recognizing that there's a legacy that was left for us. Um, you know, whenever I think about the women of 1956 and them marching to the union buildings to um, fight for this equality that we speak of today, you know, they started that fire, they started that spark. Um, and I think it's for us, the generation of today, uh, to pick up that baton and to say, look, they've run their race, they did what they can. And so now, you know, it's our responsibility to pick up that baton and see what we can do. A baton that must confront a growing phenomenon of violence, often murder, that women and girls confront at the hands of South Africa's men, with the most recent crime statistics revealing a staggering 42,000 rapes 
in the last year alone, likely just a fraction of the real number. We have to change gear and make sure that uh, just as we have said, domestic violence is not a private family matter. It is a crime against a human being. Uh, all other crimes against women have to be put at that uh, level. The issues of relating to violence against women as passion of crime, as a, as a crime of passion, sorry, there's no passion there. It is just murder, and we really need to make sure that these murderers are dealt with with the, whatever the law can bring to the fore. And as the world's consciousness was awakened in the aftermath of George Floyd's killing, calls for gender equality and racial justice to be closely linked, as Zozabini Tunzi explains. I once read somewhere, I think somebody said, being a black woman is like being black twice. And, you know, it struck a chord. It, it means absolutely everything. Like Mama said, now we're, we're speaking of Brianna and, you know, say her name. Because women tend to be in the shadows sometimes when we're, when we're fighting this and people do forget about them. And so, you know, as a young black woman myself, um, I feel they do go hand in hand. You can't have one conversation without the other. Lamongluka emphasizing the importance of black women being the leading voices in their own struggle. I really uh, want to make it very clear that racial and gender inequality must not be separated. Otherwise, we delay in the progress we should be making. Women of color should not end up losing again in this momentum about race. 2020 also marking the 25th anniversary of the Beijing Platform of Action, where implementation remains uneven. And with less than 10 years to go before the SDG deadline of 2030, standing on the sidelines, at least according to these two, is simply no longer an option. I'm Sherwin Bricepees in New York. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Cabinet has decided that all public schools should take a break for the next four weeks. Now, this has also been the experience in a number of other countries where schools have opened and have also had to close due to the circumstances that each country has had to confront. This means that schools will be closed from the 27th July and will reopen on the 24th of August. Channel Africa. Bringing your latest updates on the novel coronavirus, I am Silvanus Kalemera for Channel Africa in Kigali in Rwanda. For the advice given by a healthcare provider, your national and local public health authority, or your employer, on how to protect yourself and others from COVID-19. It's 7.19 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The International Federation of Journalists is backing calls by Namibian journalists to be able to work in the public interest free from pressure or restraint. Journalists in Namibia on Sunday sent out a letter in which they hit out at employers and politicians for muzzling the media 
while defending the right to ask difficult questions. This follows a recent incident in which the Namibia Press Agency distanced itself from its reporter Edward Mumbu, who asked fish rot corruption scandal-related questions at a COVID-19 media briefing at State House in Windhoek. For more on this, Channel Africa spoke to Charmaine Ngachiweye, chairperson of Namibia's Concerned Journalists. I think the letter was basically crafted based on a number of issues that has happened over um, over some course of time, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, but one of the most recent um, issues or, or incidences was when our, our comrade and a colleague of ours um, from another, from a, actually a state-owned media house, Edward, his name is Edward Mungu, he asked our president, Hage King, of questions totally different from what the press conference was on. But there they were questions in uh, basically the public interest and questions that I think everybody has wanted to ask for a while, you know, especially, I don't know if you guys in South Africa are aware of the fish rot scandal in Namibia, but this is one of the biggest scandals that we've had, corruption scandals that we've had, where ministers had to resign, you know, sure. and also they are also in jail for now waiting trial. So he asked basically the president's stance because the president's lawyer was also implicated in this uh, fish rot um, scandal. So he asked these questions at a COVID-19 briefing. Um, I think the president took offense to that, but before he asked the question, he actually um, sought permission from the president and he got permission to ask the question. Um, right after he asked the question, um, uh, later in the day, he, well, his news editor went and basically they distanced themselves off, off from the journalist. And then they also regarded the views and the questions as that of the journalist and not of the media house, making it seem like a journalist is supposed to give their questions up front to the media house before they ask these questions. So this prompted us to, you know, stand in solidarity with our comrade because the news editor they actually said the, the convert was going to get a warning or, you know, he was going to be dealt with. And we took a stance um, against this. We decided, you know what, we are tired of being muscled. We are tired of, of being gagged and always, you know, like our press freedom being questioned. As you, as you are aware, Namibia is number one in Africa in terms of press freedom and also 25th world over. But we, when we look at the things that are happening, we, we do not think that's the reality on the ground, for instance. In that's response to your concerns of Namibia, presidency says that in seeking to undermine the country's performance and influence ratings, the divisive section of the press fabricates problems, invents incidences of harassment and gagging with the sole objective of a downgrade for Namibia in the press rankings. It seems uh, the presidency does not believe what you are telling us. Uh, Did you expect this uh, response from the presidency? Of course we were expecting that response. But I like personally, as a collective, we were hopeful that we thought maybe, uh, you know, the presidency would give us a different response, seeing that over time there's been a number of issues. Before I respond to that, um, they are saying fabricated, um, we fabricate incidences of harassment. This is not the case. We have been harassed so many times by the presidency and, and just, you know, by the politicians. And we are not fabricating anything because... Um, there's an incident of, of, of two journalists, of myself um, and, and a colleague of mine, Jemima Biekers. We, we were manhandled by the uh, state police uh, after being invited to an event. We were invited to an event, and then when we got there, we were informed that no, no other media is 
um, allowed to come in except for state media and particularly the Namibian Broadcasting um, Corporation, NBC. But they, only a few of them as well were allowed in. And Jemima and I were like, you know what, let's take a stance on this. And let, we have an invite that says you're invited. So, and we had to send our names in. So we had a repeat to send our names in. We ended, we decided we are going to walk in. And we, this is on camera where we were manhandled at some point being pulled around by two police officers and then at the end of the day there was a threat to life made because the president was there as well so we it's not fabricating because this is on camera we were manhandled we were invited we laid charges or we opened a case against the police and we went to the ombudsman and so forth but these are not fabricated issues there's a time when other colleagues were also they would be asking certain questions at, at State House, and then the response you get is just out of this world, you know, or an arrogant um, response. So these are not fabricated incidences of harassment. These are things that have happened. That was Shemaine Ngachuehe, chairperson of Namibia's Concerned Journalists on the line from Windhoek, speaking to Kumbelo Munjalele. It's a national day of mourning today in Lebanon following the massive explosion in the country's capital, Beirut, which killed more than 70 people. The number of people injured is now sitting at around 4,000 as it continues to rise. The source of the blast yesterday evening is currently unclear. Witnesses have described the scene like a war zone. Jane Rabutata reports. The massive explosion at Beirut's port sent shock waves across the city, causing widespread damage to buildings in different parts of the capital. Lebanese media have been carrying images of people trapped under rubble, some bloodied, after what has been described as an enormous deafening explosion. Residents have reported on social media that their windows were blown out and ceilings have collapsed. All hospitals in Beirut are said to be overwhelmed with casualties following an order by Health Minister Hamad Hassan for all hospitals to prepare to receive those injured. People have arrived in hospitals with broken limbs, some showered with glass. The Lebanese Red Cross has made an urgent call on Twitter for blood donations from all blood types to help those injured in the blast. According to witnesses, the force of the blast could be heard about 10 kilometers away. They have described the incident similar to the 2005 explosion which killed ex-Prime Minister Rafiki Hariri along with 21 others. Lebanon's internal security chief said the blast happened in an area housing highly explosive materials, but he maintained that investigations are still underway to determine the exact cause. The explosion comes at a time when Lebanon's economy is facing collapse from the financial crisis and the coronavirus restrictions that have left many people jobless. Some say the total destruction of the Beirut port spells devastating consequences for years to come as the entire country is dependent on this port for imports. Countries such as the UK and France have expressed solidarity with the Lebanese people, with French aid now being transferred to Lebanon. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Jane Rabutata in Johannesburg. The Supreme Court of Appeal in Bloemfontein in South Africa has granted the Fair Trade Independent Tobacco Association leave to appeal a Pretoria High Court judgment which upheld the ban of the sale of tobacco products last 
Last Friday, FITA petitioned the FCA after the High Court dismissed its application for leave to appeal the judgment that the manufacturer's organization had failed to demonstrate that it had reasonable prospects of success. The FCA has directed the government to file its response to FITA's application by no later than Friday. The Tobacco Association has until the 11th of August to file replying affidavits to the government's submissions. Makhala Masiteng reports. After suffering two blows from the High Court, FIDA will have another chance to argue its case at the Supreme Court of Appeal. The High Court rejected FIDA's bid to overturn lockdown regulations banning the sale of tobacco products. It also dismissed FIDA's leave to appeal the judgment. In its application before the SCA, The Tobacco Association has described the banning of tobacco sale products as a significant executive overreach. It says the ban affects health and welfare of more than 11 million smokers in the country and that it continues to have far-reaching traumatic effects on the smokers. FIDA argues that the ban has already had enormous commercial impact on the tobacco manufacturers and retailers. Accordingly, this has resulted in illicit trade of cigarettes, which led to significant losses of tax revenue. Legal expert Lebohamu Mukhele. Because with their application and their continued argument was that there is no medical evidence that supported the decision by the government to ban uh, the cigarette sale. And furthermore, they also contending that indeed with the continued ban on the sale of cigarette, there are a lot of people which are, are, are losing their jobs on a daily basis and also emerging farmers which specializes in cigarettes. They are also so uh, at a disadvantage because with a continued ban, indeed, they will not be able to generate any income and also be able to support and 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 and, and keep on servicing the salary income of all their employees. Fita says the High Court failed to consider uncontested expert medical evidence that the ban on tobacco sales has had a psychological impact on the smokers. The organization has further questioned contradicting statements by President Cyril Ramaphosa and Cooperative Governance Minister Nkosa Minizuma. Initially, Ramaphosa announced that tobacco sales ban would be lifted under lesser stringent level 3 lockdown, but later Laminizuma announced that was not the case anymore. The sale of cigarettes in the country has been banned since the start of the lockdown in late March with government citing health reasons. I'm in Bloemfontein. WHO recommends 30 minutes of physical activity a day for adults and one hour a day for children. If your local or national guidelines allow it, go outside for a walk, a run or a ride, and keep a safe distance from others. If you can't leave the house, find an exercise video online, dance to music, do some yoga, or walk up and down the stairs. Avoid touching your eyes, nose and mouth to slow the spread of the coronavirus. For more information on the coronavirus, visit the World Health Organization site at www.who.int.
WHO recommends 30 minutes of physical activity a day for adults and one hour a day for children. If your local or national guidelines allow it, go outside for a walk, a run or a ride, and keep a safe distance from others. If you can't leave the house, find an exercise video online, dance to music, do some yoga, or walk up and down the stairs. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Good morning, I'm Anne Musa on the headline. South Africa's ruling ANC caucus in Parliament says strong action should be taken against those who continue to misuse COVID-19 pandemic relief funds. Lebanon is in mourning after a huge explosion in the capital, Beirut, killed at least 78 people and injured more than 4,000 others. And deadly tropical storm Isaias has knocked out power to millions of homes on the U.S. East Coast after making landfall in North Carolina as a hurricane. Those are the stories making headlines. SABC News. Independent and impartial from an African perspective. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. There's nothing good about alcohol. Alcohol is destructive. Alcohol destroys families. Alcohol destroys life. Alcohol contributes to unprotected sex and spreading of diseases. Alcohol contributes to domestic violence, abuse of children and women. Channel Africa. Unlike HIV, transmission during pregnancy does not seem to be the root of COVID infections from mother to child. This is according to Dr. Susan Lowe, a medical health practitioner from the National Health Laboratory Service in South Africa. As cases of the coronavirus continue to rise dramatically in the country, pregnant women are experiencing heightened anxieties about their vulnerability to the infection. In an interview with Jane Rabutata on some of the burning questions around the impact of COVID-19 on pregnancy, Dr. Lowe explained why expectant mothers are not necessarily likely to develop the severe form of the respiratory virus. Our experience is not vast as yet. It seems as though they don't manifest with the severe uh, manifestations of COVID-19. A, they are young because pregnancy occurs in young, healthy women generally and the severe manifestations are seen in older individuals. So pregnant women are generally young and healthy and they don't manifest with the severe COVID-19 disease processes that we see in the ICUs around Hauteng at the moment, for example. This also is what our colleagues from countries such as China and America where the virus is already, they've peaked, although they're having a a resurgence now, but they also, in the publications, in the literature that that has been published, it seems as though pregnant women are generally protected against severe COVID. 
Can COVID-19 or is it linked to a higher rate of caesarean and preterm births? Again, no. The WHO has actually come out very strongly in saying that the pregnancy and delivery needs to be handled as per usual. So COVID and the presence of COVID would not be an indication, for example, for a caesarean section. And the decision to perform a caesarean section should be dictated by the pregnancy and not by COVID-19. Preterm deliveries may be increased due to severe infective disease process. So a preterm delivery that is almost engineered by the obstetrician will only be if it's thought that the baby will be better off outside the mother than inside the mother. So severe infection with COVID may be an indication to the obstetrician to rather go for an early delivery or a preterm delivery than seeing the pregnancy to term. But again, the fact that pregnant women are generally protected against severe COVID, those instances will not occur at a great frequency or a great prevalence. Let's talk about the babies. Do we know at which point is COVID-19 transmitted to them if a woman is exposed, has contracted coronavirus? Is it during delivery or whilst the baby is still within the mother? COVID-19 is a respiratory virus, so it is transmitted by droplet spread from infected individuals when they cough or they sneeze or they talk. So it seems as though, and again I say seems because we just always have to remember that we're still finding our feet with this viral infection, but transmission during pregnancy doesn't seem to be the root of transmission, which is different from, for example, HIV and the virus Probably, if it's going to be transmitted from an infected mother to a baby, it's going to happen in the postnatal period or the period when the baby is already born, as opposed to the antenatal period while the baby is in the pregnant mother. So the transmission from mother to baby will probably happen in the postpartum period. Now, again, appreciating what you've explained earlier on that um, pregnant women are not specifically vulnerable, um, but I would also want to ask in terms of care for expectant mums what has the pandemic prompted health practitioners to do differently to reduce the risk of exposing mums and babies i spoke to one woman and she told me that they are now expected to get a covid test i think she said 48 hours before what are some of the things that are now done differently Different facilities have got different guidelines. Some facilities, for example, don't test women prior to them being admitted for delivery. And others do, as you've just indicated from your interaction with this mother. But I've uh, had contact with Netcare, for example. They don't advocate routine testing prior to admission to healthcare facilities. Other healthcare facilities may have different uh, guidelines and what I would advocate is for a mother to contact the facility or the healthcare hospital or clinic that they are going to deliver in and just get clarity as to what the guidelines actually state. Because if a pregnant woman is found to be infected with COVID, obviously she will then be treated differently from pregnant women that is negative. She will still receive adequate care, but it will be in a, in a different area of the hospital and the staff will just take extra precautionary 
personal protective arrangements to protect themselves against being infected by the mother. Now, Dr. Law, given that there's now generally a fear of going to hospitals because of people being worried that they might be going to a health facility only to contract the virus itself, I also can't help wonder if are we not sitting with a situation where pregnant women are skipping antenatal visits because of the same fear of contracting COVID, given the possibility of health practitioners being infected themselves and just how worrying is this? It is definitely a worry and again I think a pregnant woman needs to stay in touch with her obstetrician because telemedicine and tele-interviews are taking place and pregnant women will be given definitely preferential treatment and access to tele-contact with their obstetricians. They should not just skip antenatal visits. Stay in touch with the obstetrician. The obstetrician may say that your pregnant pregnancy is a low-risk pregnancy and I will engage with you in a teleconference and we will do that every eight weeks instead of every six or four weeks. So stay in touch with the obstetrician or the midwife and see what the guidelines and the protocols actually state. So your pregnancy may be at such a low risk, but don't just stay away. That's Dr. Susan Lowe from the National Health Laboratory Service speaking to Jane Rabotata. It's 6.41 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. For your latest update on the novel coronavirus for Channel Africa in Mombasa, Kenya, I am Diana Wanyonyi. Droplets spread virus. By following good respiratory hygiene, you protect the people around you from viruses such as cold, flu, and COVID-19. It's 7.41 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The United Nations Secretary General has warned that the world faces a generational catastrophe due to school closures in response to the coronavirus pandemic, while warning that getting children back into the classroom must be a top priority. The UN launched a policy brief on education and COVID-19 that urges countries to get schools and learning institutions open once local transmission of the virus has been brought under control. Here is a statement by Antonio Guterres. Education is the key to personal development and the future of societies. It unlocks opportunities and narrows inequalities. It is the bedrock of informed, tolerant societies and the primary driver of sustainable development. The COVID-19 pandemic has led to the largest disruption of education ever. In mid-July, schools were closed in more than 160 countries, affecting over 1 billion students. At least 40 million children worldwide have missed out on education in their critical preschool year. And parents, especially women, have been forced to assume heavy care burdens in the home. Despite the delivery of lessons by radio, television and online, and the best efforts of teachers and parents, many students remain out of reach. Learners with disabilities, those in minority or disadvantaged communities, 
displaced and refugee students, and those remote areas are at the highest risk of being left behind. And even for those who can access distant learning, success depends on their living conditions, including the fair distribution of domestic duties. We already faced a learning crisis before the pandemic. More than 250 million school-aged children were out of school. And only a quarter of secondary school children in developing countries were leaving school with basic skills. Now, we face a generational catastrophe that would waste untold human potential, undermine decades of progress, and exacerbate entrenched inequalities. The knock-on effects on child nutrition, child marriage, and gender equality, among others, are deeply concerning. This is the backdrop of the policy brief I'm launching today, together with a new campaign with education partners and United Nations agencies called Save Our Future. We are at a defining moment for the world's children and young people. The decisions that governments and partners take now will have lasting impact on hundreds of millions of young people and on the development prospects of countries for decades to come. The policy brief calls for action in four key areas. First, reopening schools. Once local transmission of COVID-19 is under control, getting students back into schools and learning institutions as safely as possible must be a top priority. We have issued guidance to help governments in this complex endeavor. It will be essential to balance health risks against risks to children's education and protection, and to factor in the impact on women's labor force participation. Consultation with parents, carers, teachers, and young people is fundamental. Second, prioritizing education in financing decisions. Before the crisis hit, low- and middle-income countries already faced an education funding gap of $1.5 trillion a year. This gap has now grown. Education budgets need to be protected and increased. And it is critical that education is at the heart of international solidarity efforts, from debt management and stimulus packages to global humanitarian appeals and official development assistance. Third, targeting the hardest to reach. Education initiatives must seek to reach those at greatest risk of being left behind, people in emergencies and crises, minority groups of all kinds, displaced people and those with disabilities. They should be sensitive to the specific challenges faced by girls, boys, women and men, and should urgently seek to bridge the digital divide. Fourth, the future of education is here. We have a generational opportunity to reimagine education. We can take a leap towards forward-looking systems that deliver quality education for all as a springboard for the Sustainable Development Goals. To achieve this, we need investment in digital literacy and infrastructure, an evolution towards learning how to learn, a rejuvenation of lifelong learning and strengthened links between formal and non-formal education. And we need to draw on flexible delivery models, digital technologies, and modernized curricula while ensuring sustained support for teachers and communities. As the world faces unsustainable levels of inequality, we need education, the great equalizer, more than ever. We must take bold steps now to create inclusive, resilient, quality education systems fit for the future. That was United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres. 
Not enough South African mothers are exclusively breastfeeding their children. The country's breastfeeding rates are currently at 32%, and that's way below the World Health Organization's recommended rate of 50%. This has emerged at the launch of National Breastfeeding Week. This year's theme is Support Breastfeeding for a Healthier South Africa. Tabile Mbele reports. Breastfeeding is a natural phenomenon and has benefits for both mother and child. It protects children from illnesses such as diarrhea, chest infections, diabetes and heart diseases. For mothers, it reduces the chances of getting breast, ovarian and endometrial cancer. But COVID-19 has brought with it new concerns, like the risk of positive mothers transmitting the virus to their babies. Health Minister Dr. Zuelini Mkize says there's no need to worry. I can assure you, that COVID-19 virus has not been found in breast milk and research evidence has shown that the virus is not transmitted through breast milk or by giving, by giving breast milk that has been expressed from a mother who is confirmed or suspected to have COVID-19. Nkiza says the country's breastfeeding rates are not good enough. He says mothers should prioritize the needs of their babies and should be supported to breastfeed at any time and anywhere. The chairperson of the South African Civil Society for Women's Adolescent and Children's Health, Precious Robinson, has called for paid maternity leave for breastfeeding mothers. There is a need for us to advocate for paid maternity leave. They need to be given adequate time to be home with their infants to practice exclusive breastfeeding for the six-month period that we are advocating for. And they also have to have the right to breastfeed anywhere, anytime, or however, any, any other way where they feel like they want to breastfeed. Until this is possible, South Africa will not meet the target that we have. The UN Agency for Children, UNICEF, has warned that COVID-19 is destroying efforts made in providing adequate health services for children. UNICEF's Muriel Mafiko. COVID-19 has disrupted all aspects of life and it has the potential to become a nutrition crisis. This is due to the impact that COVID is having in terms of disrupting food systems as a result of income loss and the overstretched essential health services, including early detection and treatment of child wasting. We need to safeguard the gains that the health sector had made before the onset of COVID-19. South African experts have meanwhile established a pregnancy register to evaluate the potential harm COVID-19 can cause on pregnant women and their babies. Mkiza says these studies show that it's safe for suspected or confirmed COVID-19 mothers to breastfeed as long as they wear a mask, wash hands frequently, use hand sanitizer and clean and disinfect surfaces. It's 7.50 Central African time and our economics update up next with Chabi Solohoku. Thanks, Lulu, and good morning. The International Monetary Fund has congratulated Argentina and its accreditors for reaching a debt agreement saying 
it is a significant step for the country's economy. On Tuesday, Argentina reached a deal with the creditors to restructure around $65 billion in sovereign debt, which will help bury the ghost of the country's last major default in 2001 to 2002 that led to over a decade of litigation. The BBC's Cathy Watson reports. Argentina fell into default in May for the ninth time in its history after it failed to come to an agreement over this debt. Several offers were made, several extensions granted, and the country found itself in a deadlock with its major creditors. Argentina long insisted that it's been unable to improve its offer because of the economic crisis made worse by the pandemic. But the two sides finally found a way forward. The news cheered investors. It'll help Argentina climb out of default and rebuild its financial reputation. With the COVID-19 aggravating an already severe hunger crisis in Zimbabwe, the United Nations World Food Programme is appealing for an additional 250 million US dollars to support a rapidly expanding emergency operation for millions at risk. WFP projections indicate that by year's end, the number of food insecure Zimbabweans will have surged by almost 50% to touch 8.6 million a staggering 60% of the population owing to the combined effects of drought, economic recession and the pandemic. A nationwide lockdown reinforced last week has precipitated massive job losses in urban areas while rural hunger accelerates. There's bad news for South African motorists as fuel price increases take effect. The Energy and Mineral Resources Department says both grades of petrol have gone up by 5 South African cents per litre, while diesel will cost motorists 45 cents more. It says illuminating paraffin will go up by 52 cents. The department has cited the appreciation of the rand against the US dollar as the reason for the fuel price increases which are with effect from midnight last night. Recently released money and banking statistics from the Bank of Namibia shows that the average interest of a person can get from saving money with any commercial bank is hovering at 3.95%, the lowest it has been in a very long time. The current rate is even lower than interest earned in 2010 when on average a deposit could earn an individual or institution around 4.41%. To borrow from a bank, on the other hand, will cost around 7.68%. Morocco plans to reform, merge or dissolve some state entities to reduce their dependency on a state budget hit by the coronavirus pandemic. The plan could include a merger of the indebted state railway operator, ONCF, and the highway company, ADM, into a single entity. Morocco expects its economy to shrink by 5% this year, with the fiscal deficit rising to 7.5% of gross domestic product and treasury debt to 75.3% of gross domestic product. The US dollar trades at 380.17 Nigerian Nara, 11.41 Botswana Pula, 106.75 Kenyan Shilling and 18.21 
Zambian kwacha. In BRICS currencies, Brazil won US dollar trades at FAF real 31 in Russia. 73 rubles 41 in India, 74 rupees 88 China, a 6 yuan 97, and in South Africa, a dollar is changing hands at 17 rand 31. The US dollar is also trading at 76 pence to the British pound and 84 cents to euro gold 1987 dollars, platinum 926 dollars per ounce, Brent crude oil 43 dollars 94 cents a barrel. Africa rise and shine. Africa rise and shine. Africa zora. Africa amuka na unai. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Luanda Maume, technical producer Wiseman Mangele, and the rest of the Africa Rise and Shine team, thank you for joining us. For comments on our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.co.za or WhatsApp on plus 277-6300327 or tweet us at Channel Africa One. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Zimbabwe by Bob Mali. Goodbye and stay safe.
It's in 